It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Rachel. And I'm Chris. And this is the New Statesman's Politics Podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing Nicola Sturgeon's appearance at the COVID inquiry, the SNP's approach to the general election, and everything else that's going on in Scotland. I'm Anusha Kellyan, Britain editor of The New Statesman and host of this podcast. And joining me in the studio, I have our deputy political editor, Rachel Wearmouth. And down the line, we have our Scotland editor, Chris Deeran. Thanks so much for joining us, Chris. Now, you're fresh from watching one and a half hours of Nicola Sturgeon's testimony at the COVID inquiry. Thanks for doing that for us and for the sake of our listeners. What stood out to you from it? There were a number of things, Anoush. This stage of the COVID inquiry is looking at the preparedness for yeah. the pandemic rather than the government response, although Nicola Sturgeon did try to land the odd <laughs> blow during her evidence. Maybe not particularly surprising, but she was pushed back on that. The things that really stood out to me were, she started with her standard line, which is that we didn't get everything right, but we did our best. But really came across was the impact that the preparations for hard Brexit had mm. on the government's pandemic plans, because when that was being considered by the UK government, whether it was ever seriously considered or being threatened as a bit of leverage or whatever, I remember at the time government ministers saying to me in Scotland, Scottish government ministers saying how frustrated they were because almost every resource that they had been using, whether it was the Justice Department or the Health Department or the Economy Department, had been diverted into these emergency preparations for a, a hard Brexit were it to come about. And Nicola Sturgeon picked up on that. She said that the prospect of an ordeal Brexit and work required across all the different UK governments meant a significant amount of time, energy and resource was diverted into that from across the government. Although there was work continuing on preparing for a pandemic, it was much reduced and it was also for a flu pandemic rather than the COVID pandemic we got. And she said that the Scottish Cabinet discussed the prospect of no deal Brexit. We weren't at all happy at what we were having to do, but bluntly we had no choice because had no deal Brexit happened, the consequences would have been severe. And she talked about the potential impact on energy, on NHS staffing because of an end to free movement, on universities and their involvement in education programmes, on food in the shops. And she said it was a matter of deep and extreme regret and frustration for us at that time. That was obviously something that perhaps derailed the preparations they were making. There had been a series of, I think, after the H1N1 pandemic, there have been a series of exercises undertaken by the Scottish government and the UK government to try and learn lessons from that and ensure that they were better prepared next time. They hadn't really got to the end of that. And what one thing in particular that came out in the inquiry was that in terms of guidance for health and social care, they hadn't 
finalised that by the time the, the uh, COVID pandemic hit. Now, obviously, one of the most controversial aspects of the Scottish government's handling of the COVID pandemic was what happened in care homes and the large mm-hmm. number of deaths and, and illness that, that, that occurred in those. So that's something that will probably be investigated further, <clears throat> I suspect. And the other thing that really stood out to me, again, it's not a surprise, it's just interesting to hear it spoken about as bluntly as this was the relationships between the Scottish government and the UK government during a lot of this. So Sturgeon said that these often worked reasonably well, relationships between chief medical officers and the civil service. She said that the relationships between ministers, however, um, depended on the personality and the, uh, the the whims of the individuals involved. Processes will not work if they don't have good faith and the right attitudes behind them, even if they're properly embedded as she put it, and it was put to her that Jeremy Hunt had given quite a brutal answer that when he was health secretary, he found party politics got in the way of the relationship between health ministers specifically. And Sturgeon said that can happen and has happened. She was actually Scottish health secretary for quite a long time. She said that in her experience, uh, she got on very well with Alan Johnson and Andy Burnham when they were Labour health secretaries and that political differences shouldn't get in the way if attitudes are right. But going back to Brexit, she said that inevitably the relationships will be influenced by the wider political context and perhaps Brexit had an impact in setting the overall tone for some of these intergovernmental relationships. So it does tell us something about what the, I guess, the mood was like between the two governments at that time. Scotland was always, obviously had voted against Brexit. The SNP were very anti-Brexit. You had a UK government that had been looking at no-deal Brexit and it was pushing forward with the Brexit deal anyways. Perhaps no surprise there were tensions there, but it, it's interesting to hear the detail of the reality being teased out by the inquiry now. Yeah, definitely. And it was interesting because, yes, she was giving us this detail about intergovernmental relationships, how Brexit and other political factors were affecting the preparations. But she was also trying to score some political points as well. I think at one point she was ticked off by the barrister for using it as a soapbox rather than a witness box. Did you, When you were watching this, did you feel it was a bit of a throwback to the Nicola Sturgeon of old, because obviously the, in recent headlines, what we've been hearing about her is the scandal in her party, the investigation that she and her colleagues are under, and of course her arrest. I think this was more the old Nicola Sturgeon that we saw today. Um, she was pretty confident in her answer. She's always been good at these kinds of things. She's appeared in front of quite a few inquiries over over the years now, and she clearly did try to land a few punches, but wasn't really able to do that. The, the, the other thing that was put to her was that there had been new groups set up, I think, as a consequence of COVID to embed these cross-border relations between Westminster and Holyrood. And there had been a UK resilience uh, a group set up. And there'd be three meetings so far, and the Scottish government has only attended one. It attended the first one and didn't attend the second or third. So that was potentially mm-hmm. quite an embarrassing moment for her, although she's pushed back and said perhaps we were at the second one that, that she wasn't sure. You could make something out of Nicola Sturgeon trying to have a go at the UK government. I don't really think that was the, taken in context of the overall evidence that she gave. There was a lot more to it than that. And overall, there was just some fascinating information and detail that came out. And there'll be more to come when they go to Scotland for the second stage of the inquiry to talk about the response of the government then. I think then we're likely to hear a lot more about the differences between the two governments, more maybe about whether there was a willingness to accept a certain level of of emergency impact down south, as we've seen some mm-hmm. stuff that's come out by Boris Johnson, etc., and what the case was in Scotland, where she seemed to suggest that wasn't the case at all. I suspect that the really spicy stuff, if you like, will come in round two. How much detail did they go into in terms of care homes? Because when Matt Hancock was was up at the 
inquiry this week, it emerged that when the pandemic hit, they didn't really know exactly how many vulnerable people were in care homes. They had no central register, which I found quite shocking, actually, that the government had no way of knowing like that kind of information. Did that? Did they go into detail on that? They didn't really go into detail, Rachel. As I said, the only really point of contact on that issue was about what had followed the exercises that had been done to prepare for pandemics in the future after the bird flu pandemic and that basically they hadn't really got to the stage where they had finalised the advice to care homes and the NHS. So I, I suspect, again, a lot of that will come out in round two because that was very much related to the response of the Scottish government. And it'll be interesting to see what they make of the preparations that the Scottish government did make. Sturgeon made the point that you can have all the plans that you like, but have experience as a long-serving minister that plans worked to a point, but the reality was that your sort of preparedness and resilience on the ground mattered more than any plan that would be stuck on the shelf because quite often the pandemic itself bears little relation to what actually happens. So she was talking about bird flu and how the preparedness they had for that was based around a worst case scenario and actually ended up being quite a mild instance of pandemic. And so the plan that they had wasn't actually all that much use. There's some interesting things in who would be a government minister in these situations, right? Try to think of an example where any government of any stripe in any situation like this ever got it right. And we in the press will want to jump on them, no doubt, for the mistakes that they did make. But realistically, that's a hard job, nothing harder really than something like the COVID pandemic. Inevitably, mistakes were going to be made. And it's very important we learn what they are or what they were and draw lessons from them. But I think the general feeling in Scotland is that Sturgeon did her best in that situation. As she said, yes, that she made mistakes, but she clearly worked her socks off during it and clearly felt very deeply for the people that were struggling with it and who lost loved ones, people who've got long COVID ever since. So, you know, learn lessons, but I don't know, I, I wouldn't like to have been in her job at that point, mm-hmm. would you? No, God no. (laughs) (laughs) And just lastly on this, you mentioned it, the sort of second part of this. Scotland will have its own inquiry. It hasn't got off the ground yet. And what I find interesting is the potential politics of it, because once it starts, we're probably going to be in the middle of of a general election campaign, or at least it's going to run concurrently to some of the campaigning. And the people who are going to be called before that leg of the inquiry are going to be some of these former big figures, Nicola Sturgeon, John Swinney, but also Hamza Youssef was health secretary in the latter part of the pandemic and there to for this, its aftermath, the sort of mess that it's, it's added to in the NHS, not caused, but exacerbated in the NHS. So in a way, it could cause some embarrassing headlines for the SNP during a general election campaign. But on the other hand, it could, like you say, put them in a better light than the government down in Westminster and some uh, in comparison to some of the mistakes that, that they made. So I think it will be interesting the t- timing-wise. It, it could go either way, couldn't it? There's, the, there is that question of, I think voters are grown-ups and understand how difficult it was for politicians. That doesn't mean they're going to forgive them for the, their mistakes, but certainly the comparison with what was done at Westminster, what we've heard so far, what we've seen so far over the last maybe a year, 18 months, has been that the outcomes were broadly similar, but there was certainly a sense in Scotland that the government here was doing everything it could and was deeply committed to kind of united front on this, in a Scottish perspective at least. And the comparison was often drawn with the Boris Johnson administration and some of the politicking that was going on even during the COVID crisis there. But that said, the SNP are looking as if they might be in a bit of trouble at the next general election. And if the mood is that they deserve a kicking in one way or another, one way or another, for or across a number of policy areas, or just simply that it's time for a change and people are getting tired of the SNP, then yeah, as you say, big figures giving evidence at a crucial time could certainly add to a sense of public unease and desire to 
to have a bit of revenge on the politicians of, who have run Scotland for the last 16 years. After the break, we'll chat about Hamza Youssef, Scotland's first minister's strategy for the general election and broader politics in Scotland. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. So on Saturday, I think it got swallowed up a bit in the extraordinary events in Russia. Hamza Yusuf told an independence convention in Dundee that the next general election would, in fact, be treated as a de facto referendum to demand Scottish independence. This was Nicola Sturgeon's controversial policy. And I thought during the leadership campaign, the candidates tended to, apart from Ash Reagan, distance themselves from that strategy. What's changed? I, I think it's telling Anish, that, that your perception is that he announced that uh, the next election would be a de facto referendum, because I wouldn't say that's my understanding of it, but I don't think that's your fault. I think that's Hamza Yusuf's fault, because <laughs> his speech was so loose and had so many holes in it that people could read pretty much anything they wanted into it. My, I, I, and certainly it took a bit of briefing afterwards to arrive at something that started to make sense. I think the view is that the next general election, if the SNP are to win it, whatever that means in a Scottish context for a, a UK-wide election, they would take that as a mandate to hold a referendum rather than immediately begin negotiations for the separation of Scotland from the UK, which was the Sturgeon plan if they'd won more than 50% of the votes across the pro-independence parties. But equally, they haven't ruled that out either. And actually, there was some confusion as to whether it was even any longer a 50% plus one mm. vote that would be needed if they just got the largest number of seats. Even if it was 30% of the vote, they'd still take that as a mandate either for a referendum or to begin independence negotiations. I, my sense is that Hamza Youssef was probably just trying to appeal too broadly. He's got a very divided independence movement at the moment between those who want to go maybe more slowly and have a bit of a rethink and those who really want to charge at the fence and obviously going into an election next year and a devolved election in 2026. He's quite anxious to, to draw that independence movement behind the SNP. Again, we've got Alex Salmon's Alba coming up. There's various other movements operating below that, if not at a party level. And a lot of criticism of where the SNP have got to, not just in the, the quotes, unionist press, but in the National, which is the pro-independence newspaper. A lot of columnists who were very loyal for a long time are, are less loyal now. So I think, and after the leadership election where he got, what was it, 52%, Kate Forbes got 48%, they had very different positions on a lot of things. So I think he's trying to appeal across the piece and unite the movement behind him. But it's just left people confused as to what it is they actually want. And the other thing is, of course, that 
If you look at polling recently, independence is quite far down the list of priorities for, I think, the vast majority of Scottish voters who are worried about the the cost of living crisis, they're worried about the NHS, they're worried about Brexit, they're interested in whether there'll be a change of government at Westminster and Labour can get in, the Tories will finally be removed. Um, so, you know, to hold a convention on independence, and it's probably the most the biggest thing he's done really since he became First Minister, what that says to the electorate about his priorities and his party's priorities, if indeed, you know, a desire for it. It's not that independence isn't as popular as it was, it's just a question of whether people see it as an immediate priority in the way that the SNP do now. So that's sending a message out to an electorate that's already showing that people are, even if they're in favour of independence, more of them are looking at the Labour Party now for the next general election, thinking if we vote Labour, we can kick the Tories out. So I think you just got to be a bit careful that the SNP seem relevant at the next election and they're not off on their own hobby horse when actually voters are thinking and looking at different things. Was there much talk at the convention of how the SNP might behave if it's a sort of a Labour government in which they, you know, they don't have an overall majority yeah, so I wasn't at it, I should say. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't privy to the the conversations going on around the edges. I think it's it's a lot of it depends on the numbers, obviously. If Labour get a, an overall majority, then there's not very much the SNP can do about that. If Labour are relying on some degree of coalition, whether it's formal or informal, they might have to talk to the SNP. The SNP would obviously go in saying the price of our support is an independence referendum and Labour have given every indication that they say we're not going to give you that. A lot of it will depend on the numbers, a lot of it will depend on how Labour do in Scotland as well. It's looking quite good for Labour at the moment. Every new poll seems to suggest that they're going to win a few more seats than the last poll did. I think at the moment, the suggestion is they might win around 20 seats in Scotland, which given they've only got one at the moment, it would be not a bad haul. And depending on how things go over the next year or so, they may do better than that or they may fall back a bit. But certainly if they got around 20 seats or a bit more than that, that would put them pretty close to the SNP in terms of the number of Westminster seats held and I think would mark a real shift in voting patterns in Scotland. Whether that would then carry on into the 2026 Holyrood election is a different argument because obviously if you're voting to get the Tories out at Westminster, you're not voting for that at Holyrood. So that could, there could be different calculations there. And I do think the Scottish electorate's got quite sophisticated over maybe since the beginning of devolution, whether they're voting for Westminster or Holyrood or European elections or local government elections. A lot of different voting systems, a lot of different parties in power. We've got quite smart at voting different ways at different elections. And has Humza Yusuf been nailed down as to whether he's now talking about 50% of the popular vote or 50% of the seats? Yeah, I think to be fair to him, I think that was Sturgeon's, Sturgeon came under a a bit of criticism for that as well. It wasn't entirely clear what she was talking about initially, but they seemed to arrive at the situation where it was 50% plus of the vote. So you'd have a majority of voters in Scotland wanting it rather than, see to me they've already got a vast amount of them, they've got 45 of the Scotland's 59 seats so they're, they're, they're already in that position if it was just about seats so yeah it's, it's fascinating it's it's fascinating. a retreat wouldn't it if, it, if, if they'd moved to 50% of the seats rather than the vote right? yeah and anyway the, I think it's pretty likely at the very least they're going to lose seats at the next general election to, so to be able to argue there's momentum behind yeah. the SNP at that point and after everything we've had over the last months with the police inquiry and Hamza Yusuf winning the leadership election and some of the troubles he's had since then and the polls that, that we've seen it doesn't feel like the SNP are powering on at the moment now who knows that that may change but if I was a betting man I think it will get worse for them rather than better over the next year or two. Yeah and does it still I don't know 
whether this is true or not, but does it still just about make sense for them to major on independence? Because while the SNP's popularity has taken a big hit with what's been happening in the party, support for independence, though, as you say, it's not a priority in the next few years for voters. Support for independence has pretty much stayed stubbornly around the same point, give or take. So perhaps the calculation that they're making is at least this cause hasn't had the same hit to its reputation as we have as a party brand. Yeah, and I think there are, for certain voters, that that's the point of the SNP. The point is we want independence and the SNP are the best vehicle for delivering that. But the polls, again, suggest that even those who support independence, a growing number of them are looking maybe to vote Labour at the next general election, which suggests that I think the SNP have a credibility gap now that they probably didn't have under Sturgeon. It certainly it wasn't quite appreciated that it existed under Sturgeon in the same way it does under Yusuf. And the credibility gap is that they can keep talking about this, but they're not going to get a referendum. I don't think anybody really thinks there's a referendum in the offing. I suspect people are starting to realise that if there is to be a second referendum, it's most likely to come in the next stage of SNP government, which may be after a time out of office when they've had to go away and rethink a bit the strategy for independence, the strategy for government. I think there's very little confidence that in this round, if you like, of SNP government that they're going to get a referendum. So that's what I mean about the credibility gap. For the hardliners, they want to keep the foot on Westminster's throat. I think for the rest, some of maybe the soft yeses, that they're starting to wonder what the point of it is just now. And it's interesting because, to be fair to Yusuf, he's had a terrible first few months, not all of which has been his fault, obviously. The police inquiry has overshadowed pretty much everything he's tried to do. He's also called in, if you like, a lot of the decisions that Sturgeon had taken before she left on areas like the bottle return scheme and alcohol advertising, a national care service. So he's had to take those back to the drawing board because either they weren't thought through properly or they were just unpopular or a bit of both. Um, but he's starting to, I hear from within the SNP ministers that what they like about him is that he listens, probably in a way that Nicola Sturgeon didn't. Nicola Sturgeon knew her own mind and was a bit of a hoarder of power, didn't delegate very much. That's one of the criticisms that was made of her. But Hamza Yusuf seems to be, at the very least, and maybe it's because he doesn't know his own mind so much, he is looking for ideas from outside. So ministers feel that they're quite empowered at the moment, that they, if they come up with policies, they'll be listened to. And I think he is trying to show that openness, maybe as a change of tone from what went before. And interestingly, they are trying to, I think, push forward in, in some areas. They're criticised a lot on the economy, the SNP, particularly their relationship with business. They've shown little interest in wealth creation over, certainly over the last eight or so years and even in the last few days, I know there's been a bit of coordination going on this. So they announced a response to an inquiry into the skills in Scotland. So they're, I think they're looking at scrapping sort of two or three bodies that address that across education and training and creating one big sort of funding organisation. And they're looking to involve colleges and universities and employers much more closely in that. So they're producing the kind of people for the workforce that will be more closely aligned to what the workforce of the future is going to need. They've announced a, a, a programme of entrepreneurial activity in universities, again, starting to address whether people are emerging from universities with the right kind of skills. And one of the things Hamza Yusuf did to try and repair relations with business was set up this new deal for business, which is business people and academics on it, a group that's kind of looking at what business needs from government, how they can do it. And they've put out today, actually, their initial findings, and they're talking about regulatory reviews, looking at non-domestic rates, looking at labour market participation and continuing greater engagement with business. You can see the bones of, of a change in, in, in approach to these things. I don't think any of it's borne fruit yet in terms of actual policy that is going to deliver in the next year or so. They're still at the planning development stage, but they are trying. 
And then on education, which is another thing people that like me have criticised them quite heavily on, the, there was a report into qualifications and assessment in Scotland, the Hayward report, which came out recently. And again, they're looking at taking that forward. That report hasn't met with universal acclaim amongst educationists. One of the things it talks about is scrapping exams in S4, so the fourth year of secondary school. And there's some concern that that wouldn't necessarily prepare kids as they should be prepared for going into university and even for their hires and sixth six form and the demands that will make. They're trying to do policy in areas that maybe they were seen to be lacking in before, whether it amounts to anything, whether it would change the minds of those voters who are starting to look elsewhere, we'll have to wait and see. But I think in terms of Yusuf's credit, he's trying to get on top of things, on top of his own perhaps lack of immediate recognisability and popularity among the public, on top of this police investigation, which is overshadowing everything and get on with business. And perhaps with the view that if the clouds clear a bit on this, they'll be able, they'll have things to show the electorate that show a government that is energised and trying to address where people have identified mm-hmm. failings. The thing that I can't understand about Hum's use of strategy is obviously he was the continuity candidate in the leadership race and he's had a number of opportunities to distance himself from that regime to try to appear new, but he hasn't taken them. Do you think, is it your view that there's an advantage in him not not trying to distance himself from the previous regime in some way? Uh, Perhaps there's still a bit of that. If he now came out and just denounced Nicola Sturgeon and all her works, he'd look like a bit of a hypocrite. And he, he is also, he's got a cabinet full of Sturgeonites as yes. well, including her best friend as his deputy first minister. So there may be a degree of political limitation on on, on what he's, he can get away with saying. And perhaps what he's trying to do, just as I was saying there, is to show distance by uh, the policies that he's pursuing, some of them anyway, starting to fill in some of the gaps that, that Nicola Sturgeon left, calling in some of the policies she had that were less popular, although it's worth noting that there's still the uh, the court case to go over the gender reform bill, which you know was perhaps Nicola Sturgeon's most uh, controversial policy and heavily split Scotland with the majority seeming to be against the liberalisation of the laws around changing your gender. That that could be a problem for them if that comes up. They're trying to turn it into a, a constitutional battle that Westminster shouldn't be able to block Scotland doing these things. But whether voters will see it that way or they'll just see this issue, which so many people have become thoroughly fed up of, because it went on for so long in, in the media and in politics, whether they want that back in the headlines and the rest, again, that may start to suggest that it is the same old government on the same tired issues that the people of Scotland are not particularly keen on. Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us or put one in the YouTube comments. If you like the New Statesman podcast, please vote for us in the Listener's Choice category in the British Podcast Awards. You can vote now at britishpodcastawards.com forward slash voting anytime until the 5th of September. Just type in the New Statesman podcast. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and my colleagues, Rachel Wearmouth and Chris Deerin. We'll be back tomorrow to answer your questions in our next episode, You Ask Us. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. We're produced by Adrian Bradley. When it comes to clothes, having pieces that you can wear anywhere is a must. That's why American Giant makes clothing that fits your life seamlessly, with quality you have to feel to believe. Whether you're stocking up for any weather or picking up a special gift, you'll find an impressive selection of staples to choose from. So whether you're on the hunt for a heavyweight hoodie, a fleece jacket, or a hardworking pair of warm sweatpants, American Giant has what you're looking for. 
Each American Giant piece is designed to last and created with commitment to doing things better. And all their products are made right here in America. Because keeping things local ensures the kind of quality you'll feel and appreciate for years to come. Discover the American Giant difference today. Shop Wear Anywhere Closet Staples at American-Giant.com. And get 20% off your order when you use code ANYSTYLE24 at checkout. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com. Promo code ANYSTYLE24. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com <laughs>